everyone. I am so happy today uh, to introduce uh, my guest on the next edition of the Again for the First Time podcast. Um, the guests have been exceptional from all over the world. Uh, we've had people down in Australia. We've had people in Scandinavia. And uh, today, Fresno, California. By the by, um, um, this is somebody that I watch on television. I followed her career. I follow her on social media. Uh, she is an influencer here in Fresno, and we'll get into that. And and uh, my last guest that I that that just aired um, is, is the same was the same and is the same thing. Um, but Jarius Babb, welcome to the show. I am happy to be here. Thanks for having me. This is so much fun. This is actually the first podcast that I have ever done. How fun. That Well, first of all, thank you very much. And for those who don't know, used to be on KC24 here in Fresno, now on CBS, uh, you know, here in Fresno. And um, boy, that must have changed your driving a whole lot, going from one station to the other, right? <laughs> so inside joke, people. Um, so... Um, and, and you do such a wonderful job there. Uh, and uh, for those who don't know, um, this is somebody who just kicked butt, took names from the beginning. Uh, this is somebody who um, grew up in Montana and um, uh, Butte, correct? Or, or right that is correct. Butte, Montana, also known as Butte America by Butians. So. Yeah. Oh, so it's Butians. You know, yes. That's, yes, like New Yorkers, Bucians. Okay, good. That's good to know. Um, because I was actually going to ask that. Because what do you call people from from there? Um, well, that's good. And then um, you graduated uh, college early. Um, you, you are an award winner. Even when you were in school, you were winning awards. Um, and um, for what you do now, for for your ability to tell stories and your ability to um, just kind of get things done. And then I just found out you're the mayor's daughter. Uh, so that would mm -hmm. be kind of cool. Um, and, uh, but, but I'm going to ask you something more important. This might be the most important question I've ever asked you. Um, I haven't ever asked you on you before. So technically it is the most important. And here it is. We both are big fans of the movie Grease. Right? We were just mm -hmm. talking about the TV show uh, movie Grease. And um, you know, rest in peace, Olivia Newton-John. And John Travolta was great. Was there ever a more... Heinous should have never been made sequel than Grease 2. Uh, I don't think so. I mean, the original Grease is just so iconic. I mean, even from such a young age, my family had us all watching it. I was three and a half years old, and you used to see me um, at every family function, every uh, uh, thing that we would go out into in public. I would be pretending <laughs> to smoke a cigarette, throw mm -hmm. it down, and then say, Do tell me about it, stud. Yeah, so <laughs> I mean, it's just so iconic and watching it a little bit later in life, you start to realize about what the movie is about, but right. it was such a family show with all the music and oh. um, actually when Olivia Newton-John passed away, I was just playing the Grease soundtrack on repeat but no i do not think that the uh grease 2 did any favors and i am only the original grease that's it that all oh. that's all i'll watch i'm a person i'm the same way i'm a person 
Grease 2 never happened. You just, it doesn't exist. Caddyshack 2 never happened. It doesn't exist. There's some of these other kind of movies, it just, it doesn't happen. You know, it's interesting, uh, not to belabor the point, but you know, we, we talk, you talked about how Grease, and you, you found out later some of the stuff that was about. You know, it's really a credit to the actors, to the writers, to the directors, um, because they're able to walk that fine line. That is not, as somebody who edits their own work and, and presents it, that's not an easy thing to do. No, it is not an easy thing to do. And it is captivating to so many different audiences, I think. And so um, that movie meant something different when I was younger to then when I'm older. Um, and I think that's kind of how life goes too. You think you know so much about something and then later down the line, you see it from a totally different perspective. And I think oh, yeah. we all see life and um, stories, everything through our own lens. And that's what's so special about being able to tell people stories and um, just being trusted um, by viewers and gaining that trust mm -hmm. is that we all see things a little bit differently. And that's why I love doing what I do because I get to hear and see and experience so many different perspectives. Give our viewers and our listeners sort of a insight into what it's like to grow up in Butte, Montana, Butte, America. Because uh, we I mentioned to you a little bit offline that um, you know, growing up in New York City, people of a certain age, it was the Lone Ranger and it was Wild Bill Cody and it was Deadwood stuff, even though that's in a different era, of course. And I read those comic books and Butte was this real place in my, my mind. And um, what was it like growing up there? It has such a history and everybody knows each other because my hometown is only about 35,000 people. Um, our nickname is the richest hill on earth. And that's because of the reason that we had so many different um, mines uh, uh, back in the day and copper would be sent to New York City for electricity. And really there was immigrants from all over the place that came to Butte to work. And so it has a very rich history like we said, my dad was um, the chief executive, but it's a mayor of uh, Butte for eight years. And he was the commissioner before then. And so um, at a young age, I was in third grade when he was elected to be chief executive. And so uh, when that happened, my life kind of switched because I was known as Paul Babb's daughter. And I was also known from, you know, my older sibling and my mom, but it was a great place to grow up in. And fun fact, Evil Knievel is from Butte, Montana. He's buried in Butte, Montana. Oh, that and I so, Yes, uh, every year there were Evil Knievel days where um, there was a full weekend where people would come to Butte and they would do different BMX jumps and uh, different people would jump off buildings on fire, do tight ropes. Evil Knievel would be mm -hmm. on um, the uh, Montana Street or Main Street of uh, Butte and uh, you could go and say hi to him. Actually, later in life, 
I, I know this might be a little bit shocking, but he was a little bit cranky. He, he wasn't big into people coming up to him, but it's definitely some rich uh, history in Butte. And they're filming 1923 right now there. So that's pretty big because of uh, all of the different um, historic buildings and the sure. brick buildings. And it's uh, quite the task. Um, my dad works for the energy company up there now and so actually they're um putting this blue tape and removing all the street lights the lamps in order to film this and so they are going in and they're adding detail on the brick and it's quite the scene up in uptown butte which is called uptown butte not downtown butte oh, yes. so if you ever butte, uh, visit butte do not call the main area downtown view it is called uptown view and Bushans will appreciate that <laughs> well, i'll give you a little reciprocity when you visit first of all, i will go to butte i will go to montana i must it's something that i, I must do and just love it um if you ever go to new york or when you go again to new york and if you're ever in brooklyn don't call it new york city it is part of new york city but it's a standalone entity they'll remind you that that up until you know, like the 1800s, it was its own city. It, it didn't become part of New York City till later. So you're from New York. You're from Brooklyn. You know, you, I'm from New York City, but from Brooklyn. So always remember that. That that's just a little little help amongst friends. So <laughs> you know, I'm very um, fascinated with process, and a lot of people when they and I mean this with no blame. When they graduate, much less graduate early, they still don't know what they want to do. And you went from graduating in 17, early, to hitting a top 100 television station from mm -hmm. the jump. First off, that takes incredible moxie, confidence, or at least faking the confidence. Um, and... Um, you can only, my old boss, Amy Schwartz, used to tell me, you can only hold your breath so far. So it's not faking. Um, talk about your process. How did that happen? Right. Well, I did finish school in three and a half years, which was not an easy thing at all to do. Um, I took 22 credits one semester, wow. all very difficult classes. And what I think a lot of people don't understand about journalism school is it's a lot of hands-on classes. And so I was expected to go out and get stories and we had a weekly newscast. So on top of all the homework that I was doing, I minored in business, all the accounting and marketing and uh, regular general education classes I was also going out and telling people stories um, from a pretty early age after that actually before I graduated I was offered um, the position at my first station in um, Bozeman Montana at KBZK I originally actually turned it down um, and I was very set on working outside of Montana for Thank my you. first market um, and I turned it down and I wanted to get this job in Spokane. I went and interviewed. I was one of the finalists and I got humbled real quick when they decided not to um, choose me for the position. Um, and so they told me that it was another person that 
had already been at the station before and was coming back. And it really was a little bit of a soul crusher because I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do next. So I ended up going back to my first opportunity because they called me up two months later after I hadn't been working for two uh, months out of school. And they said, listen, I know that you do not necessarily want to come here first, but I think this is a great opportunity. You know, Montana, you have a lot of connections. I want you to come here. If a better opportunity comes around, we will let you go as soon as that opportunity comes. And so that is exactly what I did. I worked in Bozeman for um, just over a year. Uh, and then what I started doing is not even applying for jobs, but I created my reel and I started new, uh, sending emails to a whole bunch of news directors. And I so wanted to come to California since I was a little girl. I wanted to be an actress. Um, mm. I'm a big theater kid. So I nice. was doing theater from seven to 17. And oh, 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 um, nice. I got to stop you there. Do you like plays? Uh, do you like musicals? Do you like Shakespearean plays? Do you like uh, Neil Simon type plays? I know you probably love them all, but what is your value? Of? What do you really, really enjoy? You know, I do. I love them all, but I loved to be in musicals. And um, I was in uh, kind of like a, a, a Shakespeare uh, play, but it was like more of a spinoff. And I've done a lot of different uh, Disney um, things. And then my favorite was actually I was in The Sound of Music with my dad. And my dad, who was mayor at the time of mm -hmm. Butte, um, they uh, were, it was my first lead role. And um, they were actually going to cancel the show because they didn't have a uh, male adult uh, audition for Captain Von Trapp. And my dad decided so that the play was not canceled to uh, uh show up and say that he would do it and so he is not a thespian at all right. he's never That's done wonderful. a play before and it was such an amazing experience so sound and music was definitely my favorite that I've done so, so far but I think that's why I enjoy public speaking so much um but yes yeah, so then I ended up coming back to California my grandma uh grew up in the Central Valley and so it Yes. And um, it just was a right fit. And honestly, I wasn't I I wasn't all the way ready for this position. And I had a lot of growing to do. But I love the saying hard we uh, hard work beats talent when talent does not work hard. And so when I came here, I was doing stories that were we call them fluffy, but were stories that were not the lead stories. I was working on the weekends and really I just, I knew my time was coming. I just knew that I had to keep on working and I've always been confident in my work ethic that I've uh, learned from my parents. And about six months in, um, I got sent to the Gilroy Garlic Festival shooting and wow, from yes. Yeah, from then on, um, my boss just started to trust me, and uh, I got moved to Monday through Friday, the lead stories, and I've been doing it here in the Central Valley ever since. So let's unpack that a little bit. Um, you earn your way through 
a hellish experience of the Gilroy mm -hmm. with a Gilroy shooting. But something inside you is ready and prepared. And do you think people generally don't realize that they're ready and they just sort of go onto autopilot because something worked, something clicked uh, when, mm -hmm. when you did that, that got your boss's attention and said, she's ready. She's ready to take on more stuff. Did you know you were ready? Yes, I knew that there was going to be an opportunity for me. And I knew as long as I worked really hard that I would be fine. And actually the Gilroy experience was very eye-opening to me because I think there's also when you haven't been given as many big stories and maybe it's so sad in this uh, profession, but some people become hardened by the news. Oh, yeah. I remember getting to the Gilroy Garlic Festival and it's all taped off and there's all these people that are wanting to get back in because they left everything and now it's a huge crime scene. And then there's kind of just reporters that are standing around and I was like, you know, I want to talk to uh, some people and see what's going on with them. How are they holding up? And there was this one guy who decided to talk to me and he had come from Washington and was a vendor there. And I started interviewing him and like asking him about the night before. And then all of a sudden, all of the other network TV crews and crews from Southern California, Northern California started flocking around him and then start asking their own questions. And at one point he broke down crying and I said, you know, I have, I have asked you enough questions. I'm going to walk away. I was the only person that decided, you know, this guy is overwhelmed. He has just been through such a catastrophic event in his life. And we do not need to keep on press pressuring him to um, answer questions. And so I left afterwards. I could see how shaken up he was. I apologized. And then I actually, through his name, looked him up online and his company that he was with. And I called his company and I left him a voicemail and I said, I just want to check in, see how you're doing, see if you were able to get home. I want to apologize um, uh, for everything that happened. I know that was very overwhelming. And I got a call back and he said, you know, you're the only person that checked in on me. And I want to thank you for that. And, you know, that was very hard for me. I love and I appreciate you walking away. And I think sometimes it's reading um, the interview subject and realizing that people are people. Um, and I think that's what set my reporting apart and um, what helps me get to where I am today. You know, one thing I really admire about your presentations and I use that term, you'll see why. Because a lot of people, whether they're in the industry one year or 50 years, feel like they have to do one thing. I am the mm -hmm. court reporter. I am the politics. I am the, he hate to use the term, you know, the, the bleed leads. You know, I, I am this. And you really do it all. And I think that makes you long-term not only valuable to your company now, but, but your future, because you can do all of those things. 
you know, I mentioned to you when we were doing a little show prep, you, one thing that I admire about, about your presentation is while you, of course, you got the red light, you're talking to the masses, your delivery is like you're talking to whoever that is at the other side of the camera in their, their uh, kitchen or their living room. Uh, and um, it, it's, it's almost an intimate, but yet respectful kind of give and take when you're talking to them. Here's the facts as we know them to be. Here's what I know. Uh, and that's kind of a lost art because a lot of people, I mean, they just want to embellish or they want to just kind of go on some tangents. And I think a lot of viewers are like, they're taking me somewhere that's not where I want to be. Just talk to me. How did you, or I'm sure your style is still emerging. Talk to me about your style because you present very similar, all the ways, all the different types of stories, but yet you do it with enough understanding and sophistication that it comes across very well. Thank you, and I do appreciate that. I think the biggest thing for me, and actually the people that I work with might also say that it's a little bit of my downfall, um, is that I want to try to interview as many people as possible. Obviously, when we're in this business, there's only so much time in a day. But from the University of Montana and the journalism school, we were taught um, in school that you needed three interviews at least or you were not going to get more than a C on your projects. And for me, I think it's so important to tell a lot of different perspectives um, and try to actually get out into the story and not just tell it from an expert's um, eye lens, I guess is how I would say it. But I think just talking to so many different people and breaking down the story and then trying to tell it in the best way and the uh, easiest way for people to understand is something that I always am trying to improve uh, on. Um, but I think really listening to the viewers and listening to what they don't want to see or what they don't really care about, if they don't want to be told what to do, if they don't want to be told over and over again about certain things, then you, you, you have to adapt in this business. Um, and for me, I think telling different perspectives and making sure that you have a fully well-rounded story has always been important, but also telling a people's story. There could be a larger issue at hand, but going and knocking on people's doors um, and asking the people that are the most affected by something, what they think or how they're feeling, I think is something that sets my work apart. Um, and I like I said, I have a very strong work ethic. I'm going to be working on the story all day. I'm not going to just be trying to get what I can get to get by. It's very interesting how this business has evolved. And um, I think that for some people, this is a way to be on TV. But for me, this is a way to show and tell people's stories and they're trusting me. I know that it is a trust. It's not easy after a shooting, after a wildfire to let people 
um, in to your lives and share the most vulnerable part of you. And people share that with me almost on the daily. And so I feel a lot of uh, responsibility to tell stories correctly and fairly. Um, and I, I feel like I have done that throughout my career so far. So I want to go back to the word responsibility in a minute. Um, but, you know, one thing that I see um, in specifically your work, uh, yeah, I, I did documentary and I, I bring that up to kind of talk about what we, we're talking about here. I believe, especially now, the way that news is, where you're doing your own editing, a lot of times you're doing your own filming, your own setup. This, you're filming a documentary every day. And, yes. you, and you don't have a storyboard the day before. You might have a premise that you might want to follow up on. God forbid there's a fire, there's, there's a, you know, it, it, lights went out, whatever the case may be. You might have a, a general premise, but you're writing a documentary and it needs to be compelling. And um, it's not easy. And um, I don't think people who do what you do get enough credit for that because you can see it done really bad. All you got to do is go to YouTube and see it done really, really bad. When it's done well, um, I, I personally believe it, it, it needs to be um, acknowledged. Thank you. Yes, it is. It is a grind. There's a reason that a lot of people in this business only last three years. A lot of the people that I graduated with are no longer in this business. So it definitely takes a certain type of person to be in this industry, but for the right person, it is a great career path. Um, and I, I tell people all the time that ask for my advice coming out of college, I said, be ready to work hard, be ready to work 12 hour days, be ready to work on holidays, be ready to move around. Uh, I think that sometimes um, we are painted in a negative light. And actually there's been multiple times where I've been surrounded by people and um, people have yelled out at me and said, I'm the enemy and I can't believe that, you know, you're a reporter and all these things that That's have awful. never seen my work, which is very difficult. Um, but this is the, the, the career path that I chose. And one thing I will say is for me, fighting for stories will always be something that I will do, even when it's not. So we call it a lead story for those of your viewers that uh, don't know, which means it's going to be at the top of the newscast. And I'm, I'm known as the, the lead reporter. But there's been times where I have pitched stories that I think are so amazing. And maybe someone, uh, my boss or assignment manager uh, or even higher up will say, you know, it's just not a lead story. And I will say, but this is such a great story. We have to do it. What if I do two stories in one day so that we can do it? And right. then they're like, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do it. And then those stories, have have gone big and some of them are very heartwarming stories i did a story um on the creek fire about an owl that landed in a helicopter while the helicopter beautiful yes my Tell that story please yes so i i had been contacted um by someone that told me that the shared this photo of this owl 
that landed in a helicopter while it was making a water drop on the Creek Fire, which at the time the Creek Fire was the single largest uh, fire in California history, around 380,000 acres, if I remember correctly, 800 buildings destroyed. And so I saw it and I was like, this is amazing. I said, what are the chances that this owl is going to land inside of this helicopter as it's doing a drop? So I pitched the story. I already ahead of the um, uh, my pitch meeting uh, set up an interview with the pilot. Uh, there had been several incidents with Fresno County um, Eagle One helicopter where they had had incidents where not necessarily a bird had landed inside, but they'd been hit by it and how detrimental that was to the helicopter. And so I had all these interviews set up and I went to my pitch meeting and the my bosses were just like, eh, we could do a smaller story on it, but we don't want you to, we don't, it's not a lead story. We're not going to have you do that. We're instead going to have you on this crime story. And I said, but I'm telling you guys, this is the story that people are going to be talking about. Are you sure? Are you sure? And then finally I called my boss and I just said, can I please do this story if I get my other crime story done and am able to put it together for the later shows? And she goes, okay, you could do it. And so I share it. Um, I put the story together. It ends up getting, I think, close to a million and a half views, maybe on Facebook and 750,000 on Twitter. But they said that this was a one in a million shot. This eagle went through a window that was maybe only three feet by three feet. And so in order for this eagle to, uh, or this owl to go um, inside of the helicopter, it had to be going the exact same speed as the helicopter. It sat there with the pilot. The pilot took a picture, was initially scared, like, is this owl going sure. to um, attack me? And then was able to fly outside of the um, helicopter and survive, which is incredible because it's amazing that it wasn't brought up into um the blades uh but that was a story that i fought for and in the end really set our station um apart from the other stations and my boss was very happy that we did the story but that's where you have to fight for what you want to do sure um and if you don't fight for what you believe in and what you want to do doesn't mean you're always going to get it that becomes a habit. And, and unfortunately, more and more times, you're not going to fight for what you believe in. You're just going to do what others believe in. And then that's where you lose job joy, you lose the sense of fulfillment, all that other things that take place. So before I ask this other question I mean, um, about responsibility, um, just in general, as much as you'd like to share, you deal with some really devastating situations from time to time. Without mm -hmm. going into specifics, how do you, I am, I'm a child of uh, a New York City police officer who later became a U.S. Marshal. And I bring that up because I saw my dad have to deal with things and he ended up having to battle alcoholism, which he beat and he, you know, he was clean and sober 30 years before he passed. Um, 
in my old world as an executive director of a nonprofit that dealt with um, uh, drug issues, you know, you meet, you hear some really sad stories, tough stories. How do you decompress? I have friends of mine who are doctors. It's tough from time to time. So how do you sometimes, without becoming um, callous, you keep the passion, but how do you sometimes separate yourself? Yeah, it's difficult to do. And that's what I think um, for some people, I was talking about, you know, some people that get out of this profession is the burnout is real. And um, it definitely is difficult for a lot of people. And I don't know if I've a hundred percent mastered it. Um, I've seen a lot of things and in the moment when I'm live on TV, like I said, I know that I have a job to do. I know that I have a responsibility. It's after the fact that I think it hits um, harder. And so for myself, I think it's having workouts that I can uh, uh, have my energy out or, you know, here comes my dog, Jackpot. So Jackpot's Jackpot. beautiful, by the way. Beautiful, beautiful dog. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I got him from the shelter, um, but he has Beautiful. been huge um, for me because we go for walks every single morning. There's a group of us that go for um, walks uh, and that gets my mind's, uh, mind off things. I think it's disconnecting from the news uh, when I'm off on the weekends and not trying to constantly stay in the know. I think it's also taking a day every once in a while and saying, you know, I need to do a story that is not as depressing because it, sure. it is very hard to just see the amount of uh, uh, tragedy, especially in our local community that there is. I think it's taking time for yourself, figuring out what your outlets are and making sure that you have a support system um, in place in order to be able to, to decompress, but it's not easy. I don't think it will ever be easy. Um, but that's, that's a part of the job and not everybody could do it. As before we draw to a close, and I want to talk a little bit about your process. I want to talk to you about quote unquote responsibility. Mm -hmm. I said this to, um, a guest I just had, um, Skip Vecchia from um, KMJ. And I'll say the same thing to you. I don't think that Fresno gets enough credit for the influential and powerful women that mm -hmm. we have here. Whether it's you who does the lead stories, whether it's Skip, whether it's Sheriff Mims who just retired, whether it's our, our DA, we have powerful women here um, mm -hmm. that are really making some wonderful decisions. And I don't think, I think that's under the radar. And, and talk a little bit about that. Do you feel a responsibility, even to this day, to the next generation who's coming up behind you? Oh, absolutely. And I think that um, there are, it's a changing of time, especially. Um, but I, grew up around so many strong women in my household and my mom was a big proponent. My parents um, were divorced. And so my mom had four daughters 
Um, and uh, I would go week to week with each of my parents. But um, anyways, from my mom's, from growing up with my mom, I learned from a very young age that it's important to be independent, but it's also important to put in the work. And as women, we're probably going to have to put in more work, truthfully. And so um, I feel a responsibility uh, for my uh, reputation, but I also feel a, a responsibility for the young women out there that maybe want to follow in my footsteps because there's so many women that I've looked up to. And originally I wanted to be a sideline reporter. I wanted to be the next Michelle Tafoya. So to see her on the sidelines and just see how well she uh, uh, could speak and talk about the game, like that was very inspirational um, for me. And so I hope to one day be a person that inspires a younger generation or just one person uh, to maybe go into the news industry and make sure that we are telling stories correctly. It's so crucial, um, especially local news uh, for the community. I've seen it with wildfires and evacuations and with um, you know the pandemic and information getting out and just so many different areas where you do need that local uh, uh, presence with journalists. And there's a lot of good uh, journalists in, in Fresno. And I want to inspire um, people. And it's important that as a society, I think we do look at how we treat journalists because you don't want people to not get into this field you want the you want the right people to get into this field and you want people to have a passion for it and you want people to tell really good stories and get important information out there and um, if journalists continue to leave the business at the rate that it is now we're in for a tough go well, let's hope that doesn't happen. And people like yourself, I think, are making that subtle change back to the way things used to be. And what I mean by used to be, just you went to the news at the end of the day or during the day, and, and you believed what you heard, or at least that's the perception that the person had based on the evidence that they had at the time. See, I think, unfortunately, what happens sometimes, and especially with with um, some of the, the women that, that are present, if they present something that turns out to be false, it's because what happened later on changed the narrative. But at the time, this is the way it looked like it was real. And I'm sorry, but the, but the older guy that looks like me gets a pass. The person like yourself doesn't get a pass. They're, they're full of fake news, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's kind of shameful and, and it, it upsets me. Um, I want to talk about process couple of questions on process and then we'll talk about the important thing with the Denver Broncos. Um, yes. But um, what I mean by process is this. I, I've asked people in your possession, uh, position this question before and there really is no right or wrong answer. Student athlete A, whoever it is, local kid, everybody loves him or him or her um, and um, they get a scholarship to go to wherever to play football or to play volleyball or whatever the case may be softball 
you, you're out on a Saturday night, you're leaving a concert, you're leaving a dinner with friends and family, and you see that person who's 17 or 18 drinking alcohol in the parking lot. Is that a story? So there's so many different parts of this. And so I think that no matter what, I am constantly looking around me for what is going on. But I think that there needs to be, how do I know that it is this person? Is it just from looking at the person? Have I verified that that's their identity? Have I confirmed with several people that that's who it is? Am I confident that they are drinking alcohol? Do I know their exact birthday? Like there's so much in reporting um, that goes into it. And I think one of the big things is um, independent uh, verification. I think that um, in so many stories, you might be given something, but how do you know that it's, how do you know that it's real? And I think that as journalists, we have a responsibility to fact check and um, verify and um, not just take everybody for their word or see something. Because I will tell you, when I've reported on some things, there's been so much that has been spread via social media, which was totally false. And by some news outlets, but also by a lot of um, social media users that just start to send things and spread things that I have to go through and say, no, this is not true. One uh, example of this is when I was covering the Creek Fire early on, there was a report that the entire town of Shaver Lake had been burned down. And so it started making the rounds on social media. And my photographer and I are up in uh, the Shaver Lake area and just start filming things and saying, no, you guys, this is, this is not true. This is what is standing. This is what is not. And so I think as journalists, it's always important to make sure that we are verifying things, that we have sources. Um, there's a question about, you know, if someone always wants to stay anonymous, what is behind that? Or if a politician is feeding you something, what is their reasoning behind it? What are they getting out of this? And so I'm a very uh, big skeptic. So before I reported anything like that, I would definitely have to look into it more and um, it would not be an instant uh, story for me. Do I think that there could be a story later on? Um, to look into, okay, has this person had any MIPs before? Have there been any DUIs? And it's it's difficult if it's somebody is a minor, um, but you you have to look into a larger context and not just report things uh, right off the bat. So that that kind of dovetails, and and you talked about this a little bit when you were talking about the gentleman that you were speaking with at, at the Gilroy shooting. Talk about your process, and I know each situation is probably different. When you have a situation like that, when to approach, when not to approach, when to back off like you did, when to move mm -hmm. forward. Kind of, because I know one can say there's just this sense, 
But if you were talking to young journalist, journalism uh, uh, students, what advice would you give them? I would give the advice that don't be thinking about your next question or what it's going to do for you, but realize that every person that you interview, every story that you tell is of someone that is out there that didn't choose this profession. The people that I'm interviewing, um, especially people in very difficult situations, a lot of them didn't ask to be in the situation that they are in. Um, and I think it just takes uh, a moment of stepping back and thinking about, okay, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is the question that I'm going to ask going to do more harm than it is worth? And for me, I'm not going to ask the question if I believe that it doesn't have to be asked. And um, I think that you, there's a give and take and a lot of people will trust you a lot more if you decide, you know, this is just a little bit, this is too much. And you can usually feel it in your gut from my experience of when you're asking too many questions, you're overwhelming your interview subject. And there's been times where I've uh, done stories on, shootings or on um, homicides. And I will just keep in touch with the family, even if they don't want to be interviewed. I want to ask, is there a GoFundMe that can help you guys? How are you holding up today? Do you need anything? Is there anything that we can assist you in? It's not always about having the exclusive interview, but being connected to the community and um, asking how people are doing. Uh, when I worked in customer service uh, back in high school, one of the big things for me, I worked at like kind of an ice cream and fast food place. And every time that someone would come before I would take their order, I would say, how is your day going today? And it was amazing to see the reaction from people who hadn't been asked all day how their day was going. And for some people, they, their jaw would drop and they'd be like, oh, really? Thank you for asking. Actually, my day was really terrific. Or for some people, they're like, you know, today was really hard. Um, but a lot of the time, people were shocked. And I think that we need to get back to basics of asking people how they're doing, how they're feeling, and how we can help them. Um, and I think that's what a lot of journalism about is about, is about helping people. I, I think this podcast, because of you, I'm just an active listener, is like a class. I mean, you know, they really do. I mean, you, you're giving so much wonderful information to the upcoming journalists. Um, you know, one thing that I want to say before we talk about uh, Broncos is, I mean, you came on the scene learning what you did, um, you got your degree, you're out mm -hmm. there, but COVID changed everything, in my opinion, mm -hmm. in ways that you cannot scramble that egg. It's just going to be different. Um, you're dealing now with people who think that you're, com you're competing with the internet. You're competing with, you know, people that um, think that they're news people, and I don't mean that derogatory. You know, they, they're mm -hmm. going out there. You're dealing now a lot more like we're doing this through Zoom. Um, 
how did COVID change what you learned in school and started to apply at your first station? Mm -hmm. And what are your takeaways? I think the COVID pandemic really changed everything for reporting. I will say there's been some positives, Zoom being one of them. I used maybe a handful of Skype interviews before the pandemic because it was just so difficult to use. But now really your interview subject could be across the world and you could interview an expert in something for your story. And it's so accessible um, via Zoom, which is huge for this industry. Um, but it, it taught us a lot. I mean, working remotely, I worked with one photographer for about a year and a half and we worked out of our Subaru car, um, the workstation car in the Slip, heat, office, even in the slash, summer. Yeah. And that was difficult. I mean, there were a lot of technology technology challenges. Also, finding a bathroom was almost impossible. So that was something else. But um, I say all the time in this job, every day I learn so much. And I learned, truthfully, so much more in the first three months on this job than I did in all three and a half years of college, which is quite crazy but you learn by doing in this profession and I think for all those young people out there you really just have to hit the ground running and I've told people from um, my university before listen you're going to make mistakes but this is a 24-hour business and take responsibility for what you did and then move on because you cannot stay in that mistake forever. And so I think with this job, it's just adapting to things that have happened and the COVID pandemic has taught us that for sure um, when it comes to Zooms and uh, uh, adjusting to that, but also um, asking for accountability and following up on stories. There was so much that happened so fast in the pandemic, especially when we started um, getting out from leaving our homes. Um, and with all of the money that was given out by the federal government and the state government, like there's a lot of reporting that still needs to be done and oh, yeah. see where exactly everything went. And mm -hmm. uh, for good journalists, this is a time to be reporting because there's a lot of reporting that needs to, needs to be done, but it's all, it also was a very trying time and it was, a lot was going on, whether it was the pandemic and the shutdowns and then George Floyd and everything about uh, uh, police departments. And then we went into the Creek Fire. And then after the Creek Fire and a whole bunch of wildfires, then you go into more of the pandemic and then you have record high crime numbers and there's just so much so it could get definitely overwhelming but there is going to be a lot of good reporting that comes out of these past two years there's a lot of things to look into and I just I think everybody needs to keep on chugging on you know and uh chugging along and we'll we'll get there we'll get there well we need more people like yourself out there doing it and and because boy you hit on something some of those PPP loans, I'd like to know where the money went and people, what's being paid back, what's not being paid back. You know, there's a lot going on there. Nobody's saying anything nefarious going on, but transparency is a good thing. 
right and a lot of independent reporting needs to be done yes, exactly exactly right uh, but Darius, tell me why the Denver Broncos will win the AFC West I hope they win the <laughs> AFC West but I've been saying to uh, almost every single person the AFC West is going to be the toughest division in football I think for maybe all four teams are probably some of the best teams in the NFL um a lot of people believe that Herbert is going to be MVP this year. I don't know about that, but we have a great receiving core. Um, Russell Wilson just got that big extension, so that should be interesting. We do have a good defense with Simmons and Chubb, and so um, I think the Denver Broncos could be tough, but I'm going to say right now I think three out of the four AFC West teams uh, make it to the playoffs this year, especially with seven teams on each con uh, 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 conference. So we're going to see how it all shakes down. But I am so excited that football is back. I just drafted three fantasy football teams, so I'm ready. <laughs> Excellent. Have you ever won your leagues? I have. I was. Nice. Um, so I'm a commissioner in one of my leagues, and I do weekly recaps which is fitting because I'm a journalist. And so um, each week I uh, uh, write recaps and it's almost a little bit of a roast truthfully to some of the, the teams. I have family and friends that are in this league, um, but I won that league back-to-back -back years. But the past two years, I had a little bit of a rough go. So I'm hoping that through my drafts this year that I do pretty well we're gonna see in one of my leagues I had the number one pick I did go with Taylor mm -hmm. last year I had the number one pick and I went McCaffrey and it was a headache from the very beginning so I'm hoping that does not happen again to me this year well hopefully it won't and I'm gonna throw <laughs> my little um soapbox for a second two people who like football very much talking and I often use the Denver Broncos as an example Everybody talks about whether they draft a quarterback and what the first two, three, four, five years, their passing yardage, their attempts, their this, their that. It's important. I, are you still there? Oh, I think I lost. Oh, there she goes. So they talk about their, their dynamic passing and this and that. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. That all looks good. But John Elway won his Super Bowl by controlling the offense and handing off the ball in the 12 days. Peyton Manning won his Super Bowl pretty much doing the same things. Now, he had the ability to throw the ball, but he was not really judged on his ability uh, on the fact that he was thrown 95 yards in the air while being chased down by five people. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you think that that love for that gunslinging, running quarterback is overrated, underrated? Because I'll argue gentleman with the, with the Ravens who won the Super Bowl with um, who went to, went to Fresno State, Trent Dilfer, handed the ball off and threw when he had to. Denver wins their Super Bowls with wonderful quarterbacks who understand that it's okay to hand the ball off. What's your philosophy? Yeah, absolutely. I think it comes in all phases. Honestly, um, the in Super Bowl 48, we had the best offense in probably the NFL. I mean, we had so many different targets, whether it be Welker or both of the Thomases. I mean, we had such a good 
team and um, our defense was not there and we lost 43 to eight. It was the most painful game I've ever watched. Then flash forward to um, Super Bowl 50 um, when we played the Panthers, the Panthers were really projected to beat us, but we just were the better well-rounded team and Peyton Manning, you're right. He did not necessarily have to throw it but he did have the options um we still had a good receiving core it was really that defense that I really think came through and that was the that I mean Von Miller having two uh uh, strict uh uh, or um uh sacks with fumbles strip sack uh fumble recoveries I mean just so incredible I mean absolutely incredible I've never seen someone dominate a game um so much but I do think that overall we're pretty well-rounded we have Williams Gordon so we we have some good backs win it it's gonna be tough it's gonna be tough it's going to be wonderful. I think the three teams right now, I'll put this down, uh, and um, is going to be uh, Denver. Denver is going to be um, Kansas City, and it's going to be Vegas. Uh, San Diego, once again, will be out. I call them San Diego. They're in L.A., but they belong in San Diego. Um, nobody thinks they should be in L.A., even though that's where they started. They actually started in L.A. and then went down to San Diego. Um, those are the three teams, I think, from the West that will make the playoffs. There's bad bad. Thank you so much for for being here today. Um, I am just enthralled with the fact that you were here. I hope your first podcast uh, was a good one. Did you enjoy it? Yes, I did enjoy it. Great getting to know you and um, hope to stay in touch with you in the future. And anything that anybody needs, I always say this to anybody. If anybody has any questions, feel free to email me. I can send you my email um, and you can include it. But uh, I, I always love talking to people. I think so, there are so many people with such unique stories out there. And uh, really, I think my job is to talk on TV, but really I'm a listener um, at the core of my job. So I uh, just want to extend that. Darius, one, one last thing. We both live in Fresno. We're both transplants. What is the biggest misnomer people have about the wonderful place that we live called Fresno. Um, because it's, it's, while not perfect, it's a wonderful place to live. So if you were to talk mm-hmm. to somebody, you're not on the beach. Why do you love living in Fresno so much? What would you say to the good people of Fresno? What I like about Fresno is just that you get the city feeling which was different for me uh, coming from Montana, especially. But I think there's a lot of good people and good things happening around here. Like, it's amazing to see how many times people have come together, whether it be neighbors, whether it be um, communities, whether it be cities, and support one another. And just the fact that there's people that have never met someone and if there's a funeral for uh uh you know a firefighter or if there's a natural disaster there's so many good people um in this area that are willing to help and sometimes i think in very large cities 
uh, that that can not be present. And I am just thankful that the community has opened up their arms to me, even with my Montana accent, which I get all the time. People always say that I have an you accent. You get that. How about me with my New York accent? Forget it. You, you, yeah, you have no exactly. Accent. I don't yes. know. The way that I say, and I don't say this on air, I'm going to give you a little bit of a, um, uh, a little uh, secret, I guess I'll call it, is the way that I say B-A-G Mm -hmm. is bag right. and people in california get so weirded out by that and so on air i do say bag even though i do not agree right. with this pronunciation but no i've just i've been welcomed by this community there's so many good things going on and um i think that because it's overlooked which is i'll bring it full cir circle butte can sometimes be talked down um about from other towns in Montana, that sometimes it's the places that people have something negative to say about that are the best places. And oh, no uh, the Central Valley is something special. The Central Valley is something special. I remember telling my friends back in New York when I was here about a year that, uh, so let me tell you what I did today. It was about 70 degrees outside and I took a 45 minute car trip to the snow and uh, we went uh, up there and played in the snow with the kids and then came back home back to 70 degrees by three o'clock in the afternoon. And they're like, what? I go, yeah, that's where we're at. By the way, oh, and we saw these wonderful sequoias that are 3,000 <laughs> 2, years old plus. So thank you for being my guest. And then go to the ocean. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. Go to Pismo. Exactly, exactly. Which my grandma, I'm Portuguese, so my mm -hmm. grandma called Pismo Portuguese Palm Springs. That's what she used to call it to me. And yeah. uh, she said that for a lot of people in the Portuguese community, uh, they didn't have the means to go down to Palm Springs. So the next best, best option was Pismo. So that's what I know it as, Portuguese oh. Palm Springs. Just let, let me tell you why I love Pismo so much. You just kind of jolted a memory. When I was a kid, I used to watch Bugs Bunny. And mm -hmm. uh, Bugs Bunny, every once in a while, got lost trying to get to Pismo Beach. So just <laughs> as a little ode to Bugs Bunny, I had to go to Pismo Beach, take a picture <laughs> on the beach, send it to my friends in Brooklyn, saying, me and Bugs Bunny, Pismo Beach. And I would have liked very to nice. Grandma. She sounds like a wonderful person. She was an amazing person, very strong woman. Um, and uh, uh, she loved to do puzzles and play card games, which is where I get that from. There's not many people my age that uh, uh, do puzzles or play card games anymore, but I'm trying to bring it back. We'll see if I'm successful in that or not, but uh, we'll yeah, she was out. one of a kind. <laughs> what's, your, real quick, what's your card game? What's your, what's your go-to? So actually my favorite card game is a Portuguese card game called Pedro. It's a four uh, player card game you play in pairs of twos and it's pretty much like a bidding game. And so you base or you bet on your hand and then somebody gets the uh, bid and then you're supposed to make a certain amount of points uh, that you bet. If you do make it, then you make the points. If not, you go back and you got to get to 181. But I play a lot of card games. Love some Texas Hold'em. I play uh, 31, 21, Gin, Kings Around the Corner, uh, Queenie. So Excellent. I love card games. Love well, card games. Thing. we got to play a card games sometime. That'll be a good thing. Yes. 
yes yes absolutely okay you as well thank you so much okay bye-bye